0: Welcome, everyone, to Minnesota's Most Notorious. I'm Eric Ribinus. Thanks for joining me once again. Great to have as my guest today, Jack L. High. For those of you who listen to my regular Most Notorious podcast, you might remember an episode I did with him a few years ago about Minneapolis murderer Harry Hayward. He is the author of a number of books, including Lost Minnesota, Stories of Vanished Places and Nonstop, A Turbulent History of Northwest Airlines. And he is here to talk about his latest book, a real heartbreaker, called The Lost Brothers, A Family's Decade-Long Search. Thank you, Jack. Welcome to Minnesota's Most Notorious.
1: Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Eric.
0: Would you mind telling us the backstory on this? Your involvement? Um, When did you first hear about these disappearances?
1: It was a long time ago. Um, I believe it was in 1997. I was uh, one Sunday morning reading the Sunday paper and happened to see in the classified ad section of the newspaper a small ad that said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, something mm-hmm. like, uh, looking for information on the three missing Klein brothers Kenneth, David, and Danny, who disappeared in 1951 from uh, their home in North Minneapolis. And and then it ended with a phone number. And that struck me as very unusual and very intriguing and potentially very sad, too, that someone uh, 35-plus years after the disappearance of some children was still looking and so I called the number that was in the ad and spoke with Betty Klein, the mother of the missing boys, who uh, invited me to come up to their uh, to the farmhouse that she and her husband lived in in rural Monticello, Minnesota. So I did that a week or two later, and Betty and Kenneth told me the whole story, which was overwhelming uh, that in 1951, uh, there were three young sons who were eight, six, and four at the time. Went out on a Saturday afternoon to play in a park just a few blocks away in Farview Park and never came home and nobody ever saw them again. And there was a uh, another brother, an older brother, Gordon, who did not go out with his brothers. He was nine at the time. And so the the way the police treated this case back then seems very strange to our ears. Uh, apparently abduction or worse never entered their thinking, but they did thoroughly search the neighborhood and got a uh, a searching dog, a tracking dog on the trail and um the dog led them all over the city and finally ended up on the bank of the uh, Mississippi River by the Lowry Avenue Bridge. And from that, the police concluded, and never really wavered in this conclusion afterwards, that the boys must have gone to the river and drowned. And so they searched the river, airplanes, uh, people uh, in the water, people on the banks, and never found any bodies. Two of the boys' caps were found floating on ice in the river. This was in November. So after five days, the police closed the case. Uh, boys presu- presumed drowned, uh, no, no crime believed to have been committed. But the uh, mom and dad didn't accept this, um, didn't believe that the boys would have gone to the river that time of year by themselves and kept looking for the rest of their lives. And hearing that story, um, as I said, w- was overwhelming. Uh, the mother, Betty Klein, was um, hard to describe her manner, but she was very open, very sweet, very calm. And yet when she brought out some of the newspaper clippings and uh, other materials that she had saved from her boys' lives and then from the search for them, uh, she became very determined and steely. So I eventually wrote a story about this in 1998 for Minnesota Monthly Magazine. Kept in touch with the family. Uh, nothing happened uh, for a long time. But then in 2012, I got an email from a sheriff's deputy uh who works for the Wright County Minnesota Sheriff's Department, which is uh, the county that includes Monticello. And she, her name is Jessica Miller. She told me that she was now with, with her investigative partner, Lance Solz, working on the case. And uh, they wanted to know what I still had from my article years before. And uh, I, I did send them what I still had, which included some things that they didn't have. And uh, over the years, they um, assembled an incredible uh, uh, collection of materials and have done quite a bit more with the case than the Minneapolis police have been able were able to do in 1951.
0: So after you had that initial sit down with the family, what would your relationship be with the family after that? Did you check in with them periodically?
1: Uh, periodically f- uh, for a few years, uh, I would talk with Betty in particular. Um, I'd say over the next couple of years after my magazine story was published in 1998. And and then I, I would um, use uh, search engine uh, searches and things like that to see if anything had happened. And for the longest time, until I heard from Jessica Miller, nothing had happened.
0: What was the, the catalyst that led you to write a book about this? Was there something that just told you that this was the right timing to compile all of your thoughts experiences and research into a book
1: a number of things came together uh, in the last year or two that made me want to write a book one was the death deaths of Betty and her husband Kenneth and with them went not only a lot of knowledge about the case and uh, uh, all their experiences um, searching for the boys over the years, and I didn't want that just to disappear into the ether. I had interviewed both of them back in the late 90s, and um, was very impressed by both of them. And so part of it, part of the my inspiration was to to preserve what what uh, I had gathered of what they knew and to um, pay homage to these two parents who never gave up. Another thing, of course, was hearing from Jessica and Lance, the sheriff's deputies in Wright County, and they were actually moving the case along. This was not a, a dead case. It was a cold case, but it was not a dead case by any means. So something was happening. And um, the third thing was a, a desire I had to write a book that would be different from the others that I've written. Most of the other books I've written have been s- standard length, 70, 80 80,000 word books on historical topics. And I knew that there are a lot of stories out there that simply wouldn't do well at that length. It was too long, the standard book length. I wanted to write a shorter book, and I wanted to find a story that I thought would fit into a shorter book. And I believe that this story of the Missing Klein Brothers was pr- a perfect fit for that length and format and approach. So uh, the, my, uh, my editor at the University of Minnesota Press, Eric Anderson, agreed, and that's how the Lost Brothers came to be.
0: So the park that they disappeared in, North Minneapolis again November 1951 what kind of neighborhood was it during that time what was crime like in that neighborhood
1: that that uh, part of North Minneapolis is called the Hawthorne neighborhood and back in 1951 it was a uh, a, a quiet and uh, safe in a good neighborhood to, to raise families. It was a working class neighborhood, a large number of Catholic families in the neighborhood at that time. And all of the people who I have interviewed who lived in the neighborhood or grew up in the neighborhood at that time have fond memories of, of living there and um now when if you go back to that neighborhood it still is a quiet neighborhood working class families i have a feeling uh that there are probably fewer families than there were in 1951 and maybe more um single people or couples living in the in the houses it's it's a very quiet neighborhood uh now or at least it has been when i have visited and then farview park which is Kind of a cornerstone of the neighborhood is still a wonderful park it's quite big and it has a uh, high point uh, towards the south end of the park which gives quite a view of minneapolis um, including downtown and all the way to the river
0: so the day that they disappeared could you talk about the circumstances that led them to go to the park how the family reacted Initially, when the boys didn't return, how the police were called in and, and what the investigation was like?
1: As Betty Klein explained it to me, this all happened on a Saturday afternoon, November 10th. So it was chilly, and the three little boys desperately wanted to go out to play at the park. It was a place where they hung out a lot. And at first, Uh, Betty was reluctant to let them go. The older brother, Gordon, had a a project that he was doing at home. She knew he wouldn't be accompanying them. So she was a little reluctant, but they finally bugged her enough so that she bundled them up in snowsuits and let them go. And the last she saw them, they were walking down the street in the direction of the park. And then um, a little while later, once the older brother, Gordon, had finished his project at home, he went out to, to be with them. And they had a meeting place at the uh, northwest corner of Farview Park, a big tree that they would always meet at. And Gordon fully expected to find them there waiting for him, but they weren't there. And he went all around the park looking for them and found no trace of them so finally Gordon came back home and told his mother that he couldn't find his brothers and uh, she called the, the police quickly um, and they told her that and apparently this was the policy at the time for missing people that they they had to wait 24 hours before starting any kind of search and then uh, Betty called her husband, Ken who, Kenneth, who worked at a milk plant nearby and told him to come home, which he did. And then he joined Gordon in the search, was driving around, looking at all the places they might expect to find the boys and didn't. Meanwhile, despite what the police had said about not starting a search for 24 hours, they had begun that evening. Uh, doing some driving around themselves, more informally, looking around for the boys. And when night came, uh, still when the boys were not to be found anywhere, Kenneth and his brother-in-law, uh, con- through the night, continued driving around looking for the boys. And then some other relatives, including Betty, joined in the search in the morning. And finally, the uh, the police officially. Uh, joined the search the following day on November 11th, 1951, and they, they did uh, they did a good search. They um, d- d- knocked on doors. Um, they searched um, some of the uh, hangouts of the boys, including the uh, Gedney pickle plant uh, right by the Lowry Avenue Bridge, where the uh, dog later tracked of the trail, and. Everyone came up with nothing. There were some false alarms along the way. Uh, there were um, someone reported uh, seeing three boys standing by a truck in Anoka County. They checked that out, and those boys belonged to the owner of the truck. And some other false leads like that that the clients got A lot of crank calls, once this began being reported in the media and the newspapers covered it heavily at the time, um, crank calls came in, weirdo letters, um, including a ransom note that directed Kenneth Klein to um, go to an area north of the Twin Cities to drop off money. He did go there um, with, under being monitored by the FBI. Uh, but no one ever showed up to pick up the ransom money. And then a few days later was the dog tracking and the caps found on the ice. And that pretty much sealed the investigation. Uh, there, there was not much after that except for uh, tracking planes continuing to go over the river, which was the Mississippi River, which was very clear at the time. And it was easy to see objects in the bottom of the river channel. And that's where the official investigation ended.
0: What made Betty believe that there was more to the disappearance than a simple drowning? Did did she ever believe that herself? Or did her gut tell her something different pretty quickly?
1: No one in the family believed the drowning explanation. And uh, nobody now believes it either. And that is partly because um, if three boys had drowned in the river, you would expect later on, at some point, at least one of those bodies to appear or come up. That never happened, and um, so the the clients believe there had to be another explanation. Uh, About a month after the boys disappeared someone a neighbor mentioned to Betty and said something like you know there are a lot of families who would like to have three great boys like that and that's when the possibility of abduction first seriously entered her mind and for the rest of their lives Betty and Kenneth did believe that their boys had been taken by someone and um maybe um raised uh, by another family or sold to another family and had grown up somewhere else. And so they focused a lot of their later search attempts on making posters showing age-progressed photos of the boys. And by this time, the boys would have been in their 50s and uh, posting them at places like truck stops, places where guys hang out. All around the country, and um, interestingly, two times uh, men responded to those posters, thinking that they might be one of the missing boys, because they had questions about how they had been raised and what their actual origins were. But it turned out neither of those men were one of the Klein boys. So. The the clients tried everything imaginable. They even consulted with psychics. They consulted with a famous uh, psychic horse on the East Coast. The horse um, gave messages by pointing its hooves at a poster that had letters of the alphabet on it, kind of like an Ouija board. And, and so the owner of the horse was able to to make words out of what the horse was pointing to and served as interpreter. And the message from the horse was to go looking along a street in St. Paul. Uh, it turned out there was a street by that name, but it had been abandoned years ago and there was nothing to be found there. So they were determined, persistent and desperate. And it, it, at the time that I came into the story.
0: Again, as you said, it's obvious that the boys didn't drown. It doesn't make any sense. But still, the police during the time of the investigation wrote it off as a drowning. Do you believe that there was something going on um, within the police department? Or, or were the police just interested in closing the case and moving on?
1: That's a complicated question. Um, I believe that it's most likely that the police were uh, conducting their investigation in all sincerity using all of the tools and techniques available to them and that um, w- uh, when the, the, the combination of the dog track leading to the river and the two caps being found on top of ice in the river pointed them in the direction of a drowning and they became afflicted with what a um, cold case investigator I interviewed called the disease of certainty, which means that, that they became certain that this was what happened, the most likely explanation of what happened and they lost interest in any evidence or the possibility that something else may have happened. So I don't fault the police in 1951 for conducting a poor investigation within the limits that they had set up for themselves, Uh, but they were limited in their conception.
0: Among other people interested in this case, United States Senator Hubert Humphrey became involved at one point, right?
1: That's right. Uh, Humphrey was at that time a senator. Uh, Minnesota Senator and the clients had written to him for help. And this was years, years later now. And, uh, they, they reached out to a lot of different government officials for help. And, uh, in a letter, Humphrey said that he would check with the FBI and, and just find out more, which he did. He did follow up on it quickly and, he, and there was nothing favorable that he could report to them. And his, his only suggestion was that they keep in touch with the police, keep in touch with the FBI, other law enforcement officials, and not give up. It was actually a very nice letter he wrote to them, uh, far nicer than the letters they received from J. Edgar Hoover himself, uh, who was very officious and wrote with a bureaucratic tone and didn't offer them much
0: hope or sympathy. You've been in contact with the family in recent years, of course, to write this book. What about Gordon now? Um, There are some siblings that were born after the boys went missing who have heard the stories over and over again from their parents and older brother. How does the family feel about this? What was their reaction when they heard you were writing a book about what had happened, what they had gone through, the
1: Klein family the the brothers um it's all boys in this family. there is uh, Gordon the older brother who was nine at the time his brothers disappeared, and then four brothers who who were born after um, this happened, and they have all inherited i think their parents' optimism and 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 wish. Desire, strong, strong desire, I would say, to see it somehow to completion. There is a, a burial plot for the missing boys in Monticello waiting for them. Uh, if any uh, boys are, or now grown up men are discovered or found. And they just want this episode of, of their family's life to be over. So when I did talk to them about writing the book and also about um, producing a podcast um, in cooperation with Twin Cities PBS. They were uh, very open and welcoming. Uh, They want as many people as possible to hear about this story in the hope that somebody who remembers something or has heard something even second or third hand will come forward and make a difference and allow someday for the case
0: to be closed. And while it's been hard on the whole family, it's been especially hard for Gordon, right? Who was very close to his little brothers. A lot of memories, guilt, a lot of what ifs, right?
1: Yes. Gordon is a, a very sympathetic figure now. He's now in his late 70s but um he believes that he lost his childhood when he lost his younger brothers not just missing them but all the experiences he would have had with them and he does feel guilty he believes that if he had gone out that day with his brothers they would not have disappeared so he uh, it's it's taken him and this is a a large part of the book, um, how the members of the family have have dealt with and handled all this for so many decades. Um, he has he has handled it and dealt with it in different ways over the years. He was a bit estranged from his family for a time, um, and then more recently has has come back. Um, he started doing that before his parents died. And uh, it it was just a huge bomb that went off in the family. Even the brothers who were born afterwards, and of course never knew these boys, were deeply affected growing up by the missing brothers because their parents would talk about it, talk about um, the loss of the brothers frequently. They would observe the missing boys' birthdays. it was just uh, something always present in the family life. And so it, it's interesting that the youngest of the brothers, Donald, who was born in 1960, is kind of the family, the caretaker of the family history. He lives in his parents' house, has all of their stuff, all the photos. I think it, the, the house looks, it's in Monticello, it looks very much like it did when his parents died. And, uh, even though he's the youngest and in time the furthest away from the boys who disappeared, he, I think he in particular is intent on somehow, uh, bringing this to a close. Although, as I said, Gordon's life was also greatly affected. And another brother, Mike, um, has been involved in the search too. And he went out to meet one of the men I mentioned earlier who, had thought he might be one of the missing brothers.
0: So the investigation is still ongoing, right? It's an open, cold case?
1: Well, the, the case has a strange status. It's, uh, the Wright the County detectives call it an orphaned case. Okay. So the, the police closed it in 1951. And the Minneapolis police will not reopen it until there is um, convincing, persuasive reasons to do so. New evidence, um, anything that would indicate that there was something wrong with the earlier investigation. Um, but uh, the Wright County de- deputies have really advanced the case a long way. And they have this, all of this information. They developed a list of suspects, action that can be taken now to eliminate suspects or to learn more about them. So what's needed now is for a police agency with jurisdiction, whether it's Minneapolis or the Minneapolis Park Police or the FBI, to take it up again.
0: That podcast you've been working on, it's still going forward?
1: Yes, it is. Oh, excellent! It's called Long Lost, and it will uh, tell the the story of this case differently than it's told in the book. Um, It's more personal. I narrate much of it, and um, you know, whereas the book, The Lost Brothers, is more of a you know long form journalistic telling of the story. This is uh, the podcast, Long Lost is, as I said, more personal, but also, of course, um, involves the voices of people who are in the study or in the story, uh, including brothers, members of the Klein family, people who have investigated the case over the years, experts in various aspects of cold cases, that kind of thing. And um, it will be available um, through Twin Cities PBS and probably all the usual places people find podcasts at, towards the end of this year.
0: So I, I don't want to reveal the latest details of the investigation. I really want people to tune into your, your podcast, by the book, of course. But could you offer some general theories on, on what you think really happened to them?
1: Well, the the most plausible theory seems to be that the boys were abducted and murdered and the Wright County investigators have identified um, a couple of people who may have done that and th- that's one of the ways that they have advanced the case and then another way they've advanced the case is to suggest a course of action for whoever to take this up next and that Course of action would involve going someplace to look for the boys' bodies.
0: Let me just ask you this. I don't think this gives away too much. Was it a stranger abduction or someone the family knew?
1: There are two primary suspects, and neither of them were complete strangers. One of them is a person who the boys. Um, may have had contact with somewhat regularly, and then the other is somebody who lived nearby.
0: Let's leave it at that. So this book is coming out very soon.
1: The official publication date is October 22nd, so very soon.
0: Do you have a debut date for the podcast?
1: No, I don't. I'm sorry. Uh, It'll just be either in November or December 2019.
0: Will there be interviews in the podcast with people investigating the case?
1: Yes, that's a big part of the podcast.
0: Oh, I'm super excited to hear it. So once we get a release date, I will announce it here. And in the meantime, uh, listeners go out and get the book, Lost Brothers, as a primer for the podcast.
1: Right. Well, thank you. And it, it's uh, the the book, and as I said, the book and the podcast take different angles on the story. So it it could be that there is a reader who prefers the angle uh, that the book presents and it could be their listeners who will prefer the podcast's approach to the story.
0: Let me ask you one final question. Do you believe you know with some certainty who did this?
1: I think one of the suspects that the uh, Wright County deputies have identified is a very strong suspect. But it's uh, uh, certainty, no. Uh, I don't feel certainty about that person or any other person.
0: Well, this has been excellent. Thanks so much, Jack.
1: Thanks. And thanks so much for having me. And I, my hope is, like the Klein families, that someone will read the book or listen to the podcast and remember something or um, think of something that maybe they had dismissed. Years earlier, but it, that it comes to mind now. And I, I hope that what will come out of all this is a close to the case. I won't use the word resolution or closure, um, but a, a, an ability to say, to say, this is what happened to these three boys. Now we know. And, th- and the family can live with that.
0: And if someone listening to this has a piece of information to share, how can they contact you?
1: They can contact me through my website, which is dot That's E-L hyphen H-A-I dot com.
0: And you have a, a wonderful little newsletter as well. Do you mind telling us about that?
1: Sure. Happy to. For the past couple of years, I've been producing once a month a newsletter called Damn History, And it came out of my interest in being a a writer and a reader of popular history, which means history not written for primarily for academic audiences, but for the general public. And so every, in every monthly issue of damn history, I include uh, some things that I've written and also some things that I've gathered online, uh, not just uh, great history stories, but um, stories that are about technique and uh, approaches for writing history things and resources for writing history, things like that. So it's a lot of fun for me to put together, and uh, I would love to have uh, anyone interested – who's interested in popular history to subscribe
0: to it. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it.
0: Again, I've been speaking to Jack L. High. He is the author of the brand new book, The Lost Brothers, A Family's Decades-Long Search. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious. I am Eric Rivenis. Until next time.